Good morning, everyone. I'm Brian Pennepacker. I'm one of the elders here. Um, you might have noticed that there's no Dan Locke, Pastor Matt, or Pastor Dan this week. So we have a guest preacher today, Dr. Greg Parker. As he's making his way up, I'll read a little bit about him so you can know a little bit of his background. He's a professor at Cairn University. He got his bachelor's there, and he has a master's of divinity and a master's of theology from the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and a doctorate in systemic theology theology from University of Edinburgh. So he's been teaching at Cairn. Um, he's authored many books and translations. He's got a lot of focuses. I'm sure he'll share a little bit about it. But so he's here today to share the word with us. So Greg, thanks for coming and you can take it away. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's a delight and an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, it's always a little awkward to be introduced uh, right before preaching because you're really trying to get out of the way as a preacher and exalt Christ, uh, but yet you have to at the same time kind of let everyone in the congregation know who you are, that you're not just some odd person standing up here. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a very strange dynamic. Um, this is actually my second time being here. Uh, the first time was for the Garzone Delgado wedding, so it's a blessing to be uh, uh, here once more. So I'm aware that you guys have been in the book of Mark and that you'll come to some familiarity with Jesus' parables. Uh, today we'll be jumping into the book of Luke, uh, Luke 10, 25 to 37. Uh, the bibliophiles among you will know that that is the Good Samaritan parable. Uh, I would love if you would, could open your Bibles or Bible app uh, this morning and follow along. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is in the New Testament. Uh, it follows after Matthew and Mark. If you start seeing anything by Paul, you've gone too far. So the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Next to the prodigal son, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is perhaps the best known of all of his teachings. So we're at a little bit of a risk this morning. Uh, you are at risk of hearing the familiar and therefore allowing your eyes to glaze over and welcome that Sunday afternoon nap just a little bit early. And I am at risk of being simply another boring guest preacher. Uh, but we must both be wary of allowing God's word to be tamed to us. We must allow the Lord to speak to us this morning. Those who have ears, let them hear. Moreover, we must recall the nature of parables. Jesus teaches in parables, often to obscure understanding to those outside the faith and to enlighten his children. We see this communicated in Matthew 13. There we learn that parables are really analogies that allow God's people to understand the kingdom of heaven more clearly, while simultaneously separating them from unbelievers. Matthew 13, 10 to 11 reads, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Likewise, just before our passage in Luke 10, 21, Jesus says to the Father, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So we understand then that as God himself, who makes himself known to his people, we also understand that Jesus teaches in parables often to obscure understanding for those outside of the faith and to illuminate the path for his children. So, those who have ears this morning, let us hear. And this is really a good principle for us as we attend to any time someone is preaching before us, that we really do attempt to be attentive, 
that it's something of a spiritual pulse for us? Are we those who have ears to hear? But before we dive in, uh, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, Almighty and Eternal God, you are a God who is hidden and yet revealed. A God who may be known, but is yet beyond our comprehension. A God whose ways are beyond ours, and yet you give us a path to walk on. Apart from your rest and comfort, we are restless creatures. But it is you, Father, who forms our minds that we may seek you. It is you, Spirit, who stirs our hearts that we might find you. And you, Son, that has so graciously redeemed us. As we turn to your word this morning, Lord, we ask that you would feed us, comfort us, encourage us, build us up in the faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I'm going to pass through the sermon in three phases today. Very classical three-point outline. Uh, the first part, we'll get into the lawyer's conversation with Jesus. In the second part, we'll look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in the third part, we'll consider Jesus in the parable. As we look at Jesus in the parable, I really conclude with two thoughts. Firstly, love is impossible until we see love is possible, impossible. In other words, this passage will crush us if we do not understand that the nature of God's love. And secondly, you can love others when you see Christ's love for you. And so this passage, instead of crushing us, will lift us as we look upon Christ. So, in this passage, we are told that an expert in the law, and we'll read it in just a second, approaches Jesus. Now, for us, an expert in the law makes us think of civil lawyers and conjures up images of courtrooms, but the kind of lawyer scripture is speaking of here is really a religious scholar, an expert in religious law, law something like a Bible professor. And his intentions are laid out for us. Verse 25, he stood up to test Jesus. That is, he was hoping to really trap Jesus with his question. He asks, verse 25, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The nature of his question is quite clear since he is a religious scholar. He's asking, what does God require of me? Perhaps even more simply, how ought I to live? What must I do with my life? This is certainly a question that resonates with the pinings and longings of our own hearts. When I was a kid, the answer to this question, what should I do with my life, given by culture, was often go to college, get a job, make lots of money. This was the carrot on a string always foisted before us as we made various decisions, what clubs to participate in, what sports to play, who to be friends with, where to go to school, and so on. By the time I finished college, this sentiment had seemed to fade out of our imaginary, or at least the millennial imaginary, faced with the malaise of unsatisfactory uh, rat race and the uncertain economic realities, the question or the answer really was replaced with a new motif. The answer shifted from go and make lots of money to go and do something meaningful with your life. The harsh reality, however, was that the most modern people already believe that life is meaningless, that we develop from meaningless cells smashing together over the course of billions of years, and then we die a meaningless life as we are cast into the abyss of the black hole. This is the great and empowering message of modernity. Our text offers us something distinct here this morning. 
There is still an imperative, a command, something for us to do with our life, go and do likewise, but it is imperative that is steeped and informed by the love of Jesus Christ for you. And I hope we can come to understand his love this morning. In other words, Scripture does tell us how to live, and in fact, it does provide meaning, fulfillment, and flourishing. So as the lawyer asked Jesus this question, how ought I to live? I want us to recognize and resonate with that sentiment. We must know also that he is trying to trap Jesus, and he's really hoping that Jesus will expose himself as someone who disdains the law. So Jesus replies in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And at this point in the story, the religious scholar really has two options. He can begin to recount for Jesus the entirety of the Old Testament law, line by line. Um, so some 6,000 lines he can start to read to Jesus. Perhaps we could have someone do that for us this morning. Or he can attempt to summarize it and distill it into something very succinct. I think we are both glad that he chose the succinct summary of the law. The religious scholar answers, verse 27, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This summary is actually quite a deft summary of the law. Our scholar, he isn't too bad. The first half is drawn from the Shema, or Deuteronomy 6.5, which the devout Jew would have repeated twice a day. The Shema tries to capture total love for God of heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second half is drawn from Leviticus 19.18. The two, love of God and love of neighbor, then really summarize the whole of the Old Testament law, its purpose. So our lawyer really understands the law. He has done quite well. But, and this is what Jesus tells us in verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And answering like so, of course, Jesus sidesteps the entrapment of the lawyer, and he upholds the integrity. Moreover, Jesus affirms for us something beautiful here. At the heart of being human is love. We were born to love God and love neighbor. The heartbeat of what we are called to do on earth is really this, this twofold task. He says, that's it, now do this and you will live. But the lawyer responds in turn, in an attempt to justify himself and ask Jesus, verse 29, and who is my neighbor? In other words, who must I love? There are two important features I want to draw out and then we'll jump to the reading. The first is what it means to justify. Uh, when I was in middle school, I had a teacher named Mr. Kalapik. Um, Mr. Kalapik was great. He recorded a bunch of his poems into songs. Uh, and so we all kind of knew his songs in middle school, like as if he was Eminem. Uh, but also, whenever he would get to a difficult word in one of his classes, uh, he would call it a quarter word. And he would allow us to guess at, as students what this word meant and reward us with 25 cents. So I have a quarter this morning. Does anyone have an idea of what to justify means? To justify. Oh, Mr. Kalapik would be so happy and sad at the same time. Uh, so in essence, the word to justify means to be made right. If we add a layer to this word, to justify, we also know that it carries connotations of righteousness. In theology, to justify is often deployed with the idea of being made right or righteousness in the sight 
of God, righteous in the sight of God. In this context, the lawyer wants to justify himself. He wants to assure himself that the way he is living will will allow him to inherit eternal life, that he is right in the eyes of God. In other words, he believes that he is loving God perfectly, that is, with all of his heart, soul, and mind, and he believes he is loving his neighbor perfectly to the extent that it merits eternal life. So that's the first feature. The lawyer wants to justify his way of life. The second feature is the nature of the professor's question. He asks, and who is my neighbor? Uh, We have to keep in mind kind of the, the geopolitical context of the time. So for a Jew at this time, a neighbor was strictly one who shared your ethnicity and religion. In other words, you were a neighbor to those who were exactly like you, those who shared your way of life, who believed what you believed, who loved the things that you loved. But the parable Jesus is going to teach is going to subvert and really overturn the whole, this whole vision of the world. So, if you guys wouldn't mind re- uh, standing for the reading of God's word, I'm going to read the parable of the Good Samaritan for us, uh, beginning with the parable. So, verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, that he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Um, Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. In the first part of the parable, we encounter a number of illuminating details. First, the direction that the man traveled down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Those familiar with the topography of Israel will know that Jerusalem sits uh, 2,500 feet above uh, sea level. This is about uh, the, the peaks of the Appalachian Trail as it runs through Pennsylvania. So no matter what direction you travel out of Jerusalem, you always travel down. If you go east, west, south, or north, it is always down from Jerusalem. So in this case, Jericho is east of Jerusalem, but nonetheless down. Our traveler is then jumped, stripped, beat, and left for dead. Down the same dangerous road to Jericho past three individuals a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. The priest, a religious man, not too unlike our lawyer, sees the half-dead man, and Luke colorfully states he passed by on the other side. It is really imagery we can see. Much ink has been spilt on why the priest did so. Was it for fear of defilement? Well, I think this is unlikely, given that the man was still alive, 
A priest would only have been defiled if the man was dead. Was it out of fear of being ambushed himself? Well, this is possible. But the prevailing idea in, this, in the greater context is one of lack of love or mercy. So the priest passed by on the other side due to lack of compassion. The Levite is next likewise a religious man, not too unlike our lawyer. He sees the half-dead man, and much like the priest, he too passed by on the other side. Why does Jesus have these two characters do essentially the same thing in the parable? Well, they both were likely leaving from Jerusalem after having performed religious duties. They would have been those who carefully maintained and kept the law, those who had various duties at the temple. And so he places them side by side to really condemn before us the lawyer and the religious class of Israel. They were passing by the purpose of the law, that of love. And to some degree, our lawyer and any Jewish person listening to Jesus would have seen themselves in the priest and the Levite. Finally, we get to verse 33, but a Samaritan. The way the Greek is arranged, the emphasis in the sentence is on Samaritan. But a Samaritan. It is well known that Jews and Samaritans did not exactly get along. Uh, theologically and politically, they were at each other's throats. At one point in the Gospel of John, one of Jesus' opponents hurls this insult at him. He asks if he is a Samaritan and demon-possessed in John 8, 48. So above all the geopolitical relations between the two, we are also meant to know to some degree that Samaritans are considered dangerous. The Samaritan, when he saw him, he had compassion on him. The actions of the Samaritan really take up the most space in the parable. He goes to him. He bandages his wounds. He pours oil on the traveler's wounds. He places the man on his donkey. He carries him to an inn. He takes care of him once at the inn. He spends the night, and he spares no expense on behalf of the man. The hardest challenge of today's sermon is that Christ attaches here really love to action. He attaches love to meeting the material, physical, and economic needs of others. The word compassion is particularly important. It is the same word used in the prodigal son story. The son, after squandering his wealth, begins to return home in Luke 15, 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The great love of the father, the great love of the Samaritan. Just as receiving the prodigal son back into the fold of the family cost the father greatly, the Samaritan helps the man at great cost to himself. The Samaritan really shows deep affection and kindness towards the man. Jesus then asked the lawyer in verse 36, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? To which our astute lawyer replies, the one who had mercy on him. Notice that he didn't say the Samaritan. It's as if the very words would have, would have burnt his mouth, like saying Voldemort or something. The one who had mercy on him. 
Jesus responds, go and do likewise. This response by Jesus must have crushed the lawyer. The lawyer who sought to justify himself must come to terms with the unbearable burden of the law. Who can love in such a manner? Who can adequately love God, let alone their neighbor? This sort of love must be impossible. I want us to reconsider two characters in the parable, the bruised and battered traveler and the Samaritan. I want to draw us to Christ in each one of these figures, and this will get us at our two concluding points, really. Love is impossible until we see love is impossible, and you can love others when we see Christ's love for us. So for each of these, for the bruised and battered traveler and the Samaritan, I want you to identify yourself and identify Christ. For each of these, I want you to pick out you and then more beautifully Christ. So the bruised and battered traveler. So in this parable, a traveler is heading down the road when he is stripped, beat, and left half for dead. Early church theologians uh, such as Augustine, when interpreting this passage, would have looked at the bruised and battered traveler and really thought, oh, well, that's me in the parable. And he would encourage his congregation to see the same, that we are the bruised and battered tra tra uh, traveler. It's really a, a stark difference in how modern interpreters interpret it and how the early church did. Modern interpreters, nine out of ten times, immediately move to making us the hero of the story. <laughs> Go and be like the Samaritan. But early church interpreters said, we are the helpless man. We are the man on his way to Jericho. We are the neighbor in need of help. We are in the ditch. They understood the man also not to be a righteous man, but in fact a sinner. They understood the, the elevation difference between Jerusalem and Jericho to be profoundly symbolic for our passage, really pointing us to the characters, uh, and indeed our, descent into sin. Put differently, they understood the main thrust of the parable, that man cannot justify himself, that man cannot love God and love his neighbor as he ought, that life is really crushing us, not just spiritually, but physically and emotionally. Contemporary preachers and theologians often place us and the lawyer in the spot of the three travelers. However, we are left with the harrowing, this harrowing conclusion once more, as the Samaritan, that we cannot love God and love neighbor as we ought. We cannot justify ourselves. We cannot inherit eternal life by our own effort. We are not the ones who show mercy. The Samaritan exemplifies for us how we ought to be living, but he does more than this, actually. He points us to Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the first point I want to highlight. Love is impossible until we see love is impossible. And this is really the beauty of Jesus Christ. So as we broaden our horizon of the passage and interpret it in the light of the arc of the Bible, so the whole story of redemption, the beauty of love is made possible. You see, it is not simply that Christ leaves us there as the bruised and battered traveler. The beauty of the Christian gospel is that Christ became that bruised and battered traveler. Christ was beaten, stripped, and left for dead. The Gentiles flogged and stripped him, and God's people handed him over to death. 
All are complicit in the death of Christ. All are complicit in Adam. Jesus enters into this death for us as those who are dead in our trespasses. In taking on the flesh of man, Christ became the bruised and battered traveler. In his very incarnation, he symbolizes us for our, us, our descent from Jerusalem to Jericho. As such, though, Christ is also the true Good Samaritan. Christ descended from heaven, taking the form of a man, meaning he saw us, he came to us, he had compassion on us. He is God for us. He heals the sick and the blind. He bandages and attends to our wounds. Christ takes upon himself our flesh, conquers sin, death, and Satan, bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. In the words of Augustine, Jesus, quote, slighted us not, he healed us, he raised us upon his own flesh. He led us to the inn, that is his church. He entrusted us to the host. He gave two denarii whereby we might be healed, the love of God and the love of neighbor. End quote. Christ became the bruised and battered traveler so that he might be the good Samaritan on our behalf. The law of love makes demands that we can never meet but a Samaritan, but Christ. This is the beauty of Christ's love for us, that his love justifies us. It makes us right with God. That his love tends to our wounds. It makes us those creatures who can love others well. If you are a believer who is here this morning, the message of the gospel tells you that you have been saved graciously by someone who owes you the total opposite. As those who have received this gift, as those who were in absolute need, we can start to be the neighbors that Scripture tells us to be, as those loved we may love. Christ's love makes love possible. You can love when you see Christ's love for you. You see, ultimately, this encounter with the Good Samaritan ought not to crush us. It ought to enliven us with the beauty and hope of Christ. The logic of the passage is quite clear. Those who have grasped the beauty of God's grace will be creatures of justice and love. Those who have received God's love will be those who enact God's love in the world. Those who have encountered the love of Christ will respond to the need of others with love. Dear brothers and sisters, when you leave here today and you go and do likewise, uh, don't do it as those burdened by the constant gnawing of guilt and shame. Uh, one of my friends likes to call it Protestant guilt, uh, the feeling that we must do one more thing. I think it's actually more Catholic, but I haven't pushed back on them yet. Not as another thing to do on your to-do list, not to make meaning, but go and do likewise as those who are justified by the person and work of Christ and who have been shown great love. You go and do likewise as those who God came to and those who God redeemed. In the freedom of the law of love, you love God and you love neighbor. Neighbor. It's been an honor to preach to you this morning. As my time winds down, I want to make two points of application. So, one, if you know Jesus Christ, do not see the law of love as a burden. It is a beautiful gift 
that we get to love God and love neighbors. This passage is telling you that every human is your neighbor. This is true. But it is not placing upon you the burden to be everybody's neighbor all at once at all times. You can't possibly attempt to bear that. If I can steal a line from Michael Keller, uh, the less famous of the Kellers, uh, Tim Keller's son, uh, he said, God loved you cosmically so that you might neighbor locally. It isn't easy. In fact, it's very messy. It requires us to be sacrificial, much like our Savior. So as you leave here this morning, turn your eyes towards your community, the sick, the poor, the hurting, the lonely, but also and especially turn your eyes toward those who are unlike you in Bristol and wherever the Lord takes you this week. Love others with compassion that Christ displayed and showed to you. We are called to go and do likewise, not as a heavy weight that crushes us, but as those lifted upon Christ's donkey. Just as the Samaritan places the man on the donkey and walks alongside the wounded man like a servant, Christ lifts us up as the servant of all. Just as Christ descended in love, we ascend with him in love. Secondly, at the start of this sermon this morning, I suggested that the message of modernity or post-modernity was go and do something meaningful with your life, which of course is highly ironic, considering most of modernity claims that we are meaninglessness going towards meaninglessness. But scripture offers us a different account of reality. It tells us we are created by a loving God and for a loving God. And what God calls us to do while we are here is not to create our own meaning, but to participate in his love. To love him and to love our neighbor. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ this morning, I've come to church or are online. I hope that you have been given ears to hear, that you will understand that your life has been given profound meaning in God's love, that you have a deep purpose on this earth to love God and love your neighbor. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your love. It is an astonishing gift, an undeserved merit, and an undeserved gift. But Christ... God, I'm, I'm so enamored by the innkeeper in this parable. You bring to him the same choice of the three men on the street. Yet he simply just helps the Samaritan. Lord, we may, may we be those who see you, see your love, and pick up the call of the innkeeper and help others. We ask that you would empower us to be agents of your love in our families, in our church, and in our community, just as you are with us, to the ends of the earth. Amen.